0: We're in Exodus 14. Actually, we're going to pick up uh, chapter 13, verse 17 to lead into... Chapter 14, because the story kind of begins there um, and it flows right into the text um, tonight. Uh, We'll pick up there in just a few minutes. But last week we talked about the intermission, um, how chapter 12 is so important, chapter 14 is so important, chapter 13 is easy to skip over. uh, But we didn't want to skip over um, a a chapter of God's Word and we felt like it was uh, important to be included, so it was important to study. Um, And we talked about the intermissions in life, how often between big event and big event there are those lulls, right? And, and sometimes there's a longer period of time than we uh, anticipate or we would like, um, but we choose to believe and we are encouraged from the Scripture that it's in those intermissions, it's in those lulls, it's in those valleys, it's in those uh, pause periods of our life that God is preparing us and that God is, is equipping us and, and, and getting us prepared for something better to come. And, and, and it's also important in those valleys, it's also important in those pauses, in those intermissions to look back at what God has done, um, and, and, and to not take for granted the great things that we've witnessed, but to make much about those things that we've seen. Of course, the Passover event, such a major event in the history of Israel, um, God was reminding them of that, and He told them, hey, this should be something that you should always think of and go back to and for years and years and years, and of course they would, um, but it was because of that time of pause, that time of intermission. We, we talked about how, as they were coming out of Egypt, no doubt they were in and excited uh, in excitement and they were um, in a hurry to get to the promised land. But, of course, God told them to stop and camp and spend a week reflecting on what had just happened. Um, Of course, our patience doesn't always lead us to do those sorts of things and doesn't always allow us to do those sorts of things, Um, but it would do us well. Um, Every Sunday after we have met to worship, we ought to give pause to what we have just witnessed, to what we've just been a part of, right? Um, Worship is not just a spectator sport. It's not something we come and we watch and we critique and observe and we might learn or we might not. Worship is something that we take part in, um, from the singing to the giving, even the listening, because God is preparing us and equipping us. And we ought to leave from those opportunities um, and and think back at what we witnessed and and go forward from um, that place a different person. And um, uh, we learn from chapter 13 that there's always a reason to pause. And remember the strong hand of the Lord that brought us out of Egypt or brought us out of Sin or brought us through that time. Um, and, and it's never, there, it's never um, you know, too much time never passes for us not to look back. And remember and, and, and therefore walk forward differently. Um, and, and of course, now we're moving on to the next big act of the movie or the next big act of the history that we're reading. Um, we, we know, uh, even if you have never studied the book of Exodus, um, if you were to ask, I'm sure if I were to ask you, Um, hey, you know, what are the two big events in the story of Exodus, or in the story of Israel coming out of Egypt? I'm pretty sure you probably could tell me, most of the people in the world, even uh, people who are just marginally um, biblically literate, if you were to walk up and say, hey, what are two big events that took place in the story of Moses? They probably would come uh, up with the two things we've studied. The Passover and the Red Sea Crossing, right? And the Passover being this historic event that shaped Israel and defined their faith and their religion. And of Course, the Red Sea crossing that uh, demonstrated to them and to the world the power of their God. And, and all of this is famous because it literally is the story of the birth of. This is how Israel went from being a tribe of slaves to a nation unto God. And and after years of prophecy and build-up and expectation, Israel was born through extraordinary circumstances. And and it's so amazing. You can go back and you can read it in Genesis 15. God told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves for 400 years in a superpower, a foreign nation, of course, exactly as it was said. Um, The nation of Israel or the people of Israel would become slaves and would spend 400 years under Egypt's rule, but they would come out through extraordinary circumstances. And from Genesis to Egypt, and in the in-between, everything was staged, everything was prepared so that Israel could rise, and Yahweh's fame would rise with the nation, so that the whole world would know, you all have heard me say this enough, it's been in our text enough, this was all so that the world would know that there was one God, and that was just the beginning of the story, of course. Um, The Old Testament would continue to build, and eventually the New Testament would come off of that, uh, would rise on that same platform, um, where through Christ the world would have full assurance that there is one God, and He came to earth through the person of Jesus to declare to the whole world there is one way, there is one Creator, there is one Savior, there is one that we should worship and trust. And it all comes back to that conversation that Moses and God had at the beginning of His ministry in Exodus 7, when God told Moses what was going to happen in the next few years. God said, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So God told Moses, here's the reason why Here's why I'm doing this. Here's what's going to happen for the next few years. Here's why all this is taking place like it's going to take place. It's because I am going to make it very clear to Egypt and to any other nation that's watching and to all the gods that the world may worship that everyone is going to be uh, going to have undeniable evidence that I am Yahweh is the one true God that I am the Lord. You're going to watch it, and you're going to see it, and you're going to believe it. And this is why all this is happening, and and it may take a few years down the road, but when the stage is set, when it's all said and done, this is going to lead to the ultimate uh, uh, demonstration of God's glory, which is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this in Galatians. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. All of this is a piece to the puzzle that is made so clear through Jesus, And, of course, we're just in the early days of the fullness of times coming together. This is just a piece of that. But it was ultimately and definitely one of the earliest pieces of that puzzle. And, of course, no one denies the Exodus story. Even secular historians will point to um, a, a coming out of Egypt as the origin of the people of Israel. Um, if you read history books, uh, you watch documentaries, they may critique the how, but they do not argue with the what. Israel came out uh, uh, as a wandering group who became slaves to the people of Egypt and then became free, and they migrated their way back to the land of their forefather Abraham, where they became the nation of Israel through extraordinary circumstances. That's history, and thankfully we have a source of inspired history, so we have the real and inside story of how it all exactly came to be. And so the Passover and the Red Sea are these two events that would be talked about for generations for the Jewish people. It would define the Jews civilly, spiritually, and this is their reference point for everything And we made this comparison, which I think helps frame how crucial these events uh, were and are remembered as and and as they're referenced to. Um, we, we, We talked last week that if Passover was Israel's salvation, the Red Sea crossing was their baptism. And of course, that's a very Christian way of looking at things, but hey, that's okay to do that, right? But even for the Jewish people, they would point to the Passover as their nation's salvation. And they would point at the Red Sea crossing as their nation being sealed what we believe baptism is, a public proclamation, a public demonstration of, of what God has done and what God is going to always do, which is protect and seal uh, His people. So Israel as a nation, as a people, they would look back on this, and they still do. The Jews, every single April, every single spring of the year, they look back on these two events as the touchstone, as the cornerstone moments for their nation. And come on, the whole world looks back on these events as so important for how the rest of history would come together. So, we're going to dive into our text, uh, which is not lacking at all in high watermarks, as the story of Yahweh versus Pharaoh finally reaches the final epic conclusion. So, we're going to begin in verse 17 of chapter 13, and let's begin by reading through chapter 14, verse 3, as the stage is set for this epic conclusion. So, the text tells us, "...then it came to pass..." "...when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt." And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, "God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you." So they took their journey from Succoth to the encamp in Etham at the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went with them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. But the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before pi Harioth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea, the Red Sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land, the wilderness, the wilderness, has closed them in. Now, I think you can see where that's going to go, but the more sensible route for God to have led the people out of Egypt. Um, the more uh, the, the route that would have led them to you know the most uh, the most limitless f- uh, future or, or forward motion, they would not have been impeded or stopped by anything. Um, would have been traveling along along the Mediterranean Sea, the northern coast of Africa. Um, there was nothing that would have impeded their progress again. Um, but there were civilizations along the coast. There were uh, you know nations of of the different tribes and and and, and uh, the land of the world at the time. Um, so if a Strong migration of a million plus men and women and children were to arrive in those lands it would have probably drawn out a pretty hostile defense from those tribes and from those nations. So God says I'm not going to lead y'all the easy way um, because y'all don't know this but there's nations up there and if they see a big herd of people coming a million strong they're going to get a little bit afraid and they're going to attack you and you don't want to be, you're not ready for war and y'all aren't ready to fight a war so I'm going to lead y'all in the desert I'm going to lead y'all in the direction where there is literally nobody because nobody in their right mind would go this way. So I'm going to lead you that way because it's the safest way, even though it might not seem like the easiest way. Now, God will lead them southeast directly in the path of a roadblock called the Red Sea. Now, this is just a very um, amateur way of kind of demonstrating this. It would have made sense to go from the red dot, which was Ramesses, the capital of the empire of Egypt. It would have made the most sense just to go directly east, um, whether you know, along the coast or just in the middle there. It would have made the most sense to go that way because it would have just been a surefire way. And there would have been pathways and there would have been uh, roads that would have been carved out and paved by merchants. So it would have been the easiest way to go. There would have been highways there and there would have been you know, stopping points and cities to rest in. But that would have led to controversy or maybe some, some problems that would have uh, caused more trouble. So God leads them the southeast way, the, the blue arrow, um, that takes them directly to the Red Sea. And the text assures us that they were going in the right direction because God was with them. So right as it says there in chapter 13, um, it would have been easier to go this way, but God leads them the other way. And then God reminds us, though, that they weren't alone or they weren't in danger because He was with them. The spire and the cloud was there there to remind them, and it was visible proof of God's protection and presence with cloud by day and fire by night. Now, God did not owe them the cloud or the fire. They didn't have to have that. He had already proven himself to be real and present to them. But the cloud and the fire were reiterating to and conditioning Israel to trust God as they had in the Passover. We're going to camp out here for a little bit to make sure we get this tonight. God was showing them the cloud and the fire to reiterate and condition them to stay at that same place they had been saved. As they had trusted God for their salvation that night at the Passover, they ought not to move from that place of complete and total surrender. And the idea is, don't move past the place of complete and total submission and reliance on God. If it saved you, it's enough to sustain you. And why in the world would you rise up from that place of surrender and think as think to yourself, I don't need to remain in that place. I don't need to remain totally surrendered. I've got to the dose of salvation, I can trust in myself from now on. And isn't that our nature though? Isn't it our nature to have these moments of you know surrender, these moments of emotional you know uh, submission to God, but almost once we get removed from those environments, once we get out of those scenes and those settings, we get back in our flesh and it's almost as if, yes, we trusted God, but it was temporary. Yes, we trusted God, but now I see clearly and I don't need to depend on Him as much. God made it very clear to the Jews. You're going to think, I don't need to depend on him as much anymore, but don't you dare fall for that. Look at that cloud. Look at that fire. And remember, as you trusted me in salvation, continue to trust in me every single day. And he took them the hard way so that they might have this conditioned into their souls. Because that's what a good parent would do, right? A good parent, a good father is wanting to make sure that they don't think twice about trusting in Him. Now, we don't kneel for salvation and get back up never to kneel or surrender again. Salvation is not a one-time act. It's the beginning of a forever submission. Salvation isn't some one-time confession and surrender. It's a once and from now on confession and surrender. It's a once, yes, it's a moment of surrender. It's an initial time of transferring your trust. There's a moment when you go from being a non-believer to a believer, from a lost person to a saved person. I'm not doubting there is not a beginning. I'm not saying there isn't a starting point, a clear and evident time of turning, of repenting, of change, but it It's not a one and done. It's a once and from now on. As in, I'm walking in this direction and I'm not going to stop walking in that direction. It's a once and from now on. And please, 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 from now on is so important. Again, saving faith is sustaining faith. And, and, and here's a way to weed out um, empty and emotion-based confessions. Um, also a way to check yourself regarding the substance of your faith in language I think we can understand. Was your posture at salvation the beginning of a trend or does it chart as an outlier? That when you surrendered at salvation, was that the beginning of more trust and more surrender and more submission? Or when you look at it from the grand scheme of things, does it chart as something of an outlier? Now here's what I mean by that. When we become a Christian, we put our faith in God in it should increase over time, right? That's not rocket science. This isn't you know, too deep mathematics, right? When we trust in God, our trust should only go up. It should never go down. But for some reason, a lot of people's conversion experiences, when you back up and look at their lives from 30,000 feet it looks more like this. That there was an initial spike of trust or surrender or this emotional moment of I believe, but almost immediately or sometimes after a while it shows up that that was just an outlier. That was just a anom- an anomaly. Now maybe you don't know, but here's what I know. If you're living in a God-sensitive life as a saved person, even as someone who's just trying to be religious, God is going to lead you into some situations that are going to Expose whether your faith is increasing or whether your faith was not genuine at all. For the saved person, it just means that you're continually going to build your faith. But for the pretender, it's going to expose hypocrisy and hopefully bring about a true conversion. So regardless, God is going to lead you down some paths that are going to challenge you and test you. And the Word does this daily if you read it. And the Spirit is constantly steering us in these sorts of directions. And sometimes, the way God leads us may seem foolish to the world, but it shouldn't be any surprise to us. And he's leading us that way so that we might understand the way he operates and ultimately what his motive is in everything. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1 God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. God sent them the, the way that didn't seem to be the best way. God sent them in a direction that did not look like it was the ideal direction. God said, hey, I want you to do this, even though you think you should do that, because I'm, do, I'm, I'm making a point here. I'm driving home a purpose here. So that no human might bring might boast in the presence of God. Because if you so much as get out of this place of humility and surrender and you get back in your flesh, you will forget who saved you and you will go in a direction that will destroy you. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Speaking of the fact that Christ died a death that many would say was foolish on a cross. Christ went went, went a way that no one would have thought, hey, that's a surefire way of bringing salvation, but it was God's way. And it's the only way. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we can come to this conclusion. If it's for God's glory, anything less than maximum glory to God will result in less than best for us. If it's for God's glory, it will ultimately be for our best. And anything less than the most glory to God, it will result in the less than best scenario for us. God led the Jews in the way that on paper was less than ideal, but He knew it was for their best. And it wasn't as simple as once they got down the road, they realized, ah, we've made the right decision. That's not how this works. They didn't get 20 miles down the road and, they think, and, and thought, oh, wow, we're glad we chose this direction because clearly this was the better option. Because that's not what the text tells us. The text tells us that when they got down the road, and they got to the camp at Baal Zephon, they realized they were at a dead end. And then they began to wonder what's going on? You know, you said that road was not the best road, but you've led us to a dead end. So war is better than a dead end, I think, if you want to weigh the options. God led them to a dead end. So again, the definite proof of this being for their best is still down the road. And, and, and that isn't even what God emphasizes here as a motivation. Because what does God say is the reason for backing them up against the corner? In verse 3, I've done this so that Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land and the wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them and I will gain honor over Pharaoh, over all his army, that the Egyptians may know. You've seen this coming. So the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So why did God back them in a corner? Because He had to show Pharaoh once and for all who He was. Why did God back them in a corner? It was not because it was going to be the easiest option for them. It was going to bring the most glory to Him. And the most glory means the best for us even if it doesn't look like it at first. We always err on the side of what brings maximum glory to God. God says we're going to go in this direction for Pharaoh. And I know what our response to that initially. That makes no sense, God. I mean, shouldn't it be let's go? Shouldn't it be let's go this way? Since Pharaoh is going that way, I mean, shouldn't that be our, our kind of attitude? Okay, Pharaoh's going to go that way, so let's go this way. I mean, God, what part What part of it, let's go that way so Pharaoh can come that way and corner us makes any sense? God was still sticking to His plan as He told Moses in Exodus 7. When, when we're, in this, we're in this to make known to the world that I am the Lord. And remember... It is necessary that I back y'all into a corner to bait Pharaoh into coming after you because that's how we're going to finish this off. That's how this brings maximum glory to God. And remember, don't forget, maximum glory... God will always result in the best case scenario for us. And best is not defined by us. It's defined by God because best doesn't always mean easy, comfortable, or without cost. Eternally speaking, if we want what is best for us, we will go with whatever most glorifies God. That's easy to say, but difficult to be obedient to. But that ultimately is a decision we've got to make. I want to touch on one thing here. You know, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God often would reveal things to people and always through his word that we have recorded. We often say, we pray and we seek. We want those kind of experiences. We want God to just reveal himself to us and speak to us and make things real to us. And of course, if you read the Bible, he does that every day. Reading His Word and being in His church results in those sorts of experiences. This same text applies to us. So if you want God to make Himself real to you and reveal Himself to you regarding the direction you should go in, in your life, this text speaks to you as much as it did them. This text may apply to you in your, in your life. God is saying, I need you to do this my way. And you might be reluctant because you don't want to do it His way because it's not the easiest or the most affordable or the most desirable. But you know what you got to do, don't you? Because what is ultimately... The goal. What is going to bring maximum glory to God? God tells Israel, I am going to back y'all in a corner and I'm going to use y'all as cheese on a mouse trap to make Pharaoh come after you and you're going to be scared to death when he comes rolling over those hills. And you're going to stand there and think, this is our end. But remember, maximum glory glory. Y'all good with that? Look at what verse 4 says. And they did so. (laughs) That's not to say that they didn't have second thoughts, but just the fact that they said yes to this shows that we have a lot of room to grow, don't we? Because that is not desirable, is it? Look at verse 5 through 12. It was told to the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots, all the chariots of Egypt, with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. Until... The Egyptians pursued them and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook the camp by the sea of Pi-herioth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. I bet they were. They were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. I bet they did. And they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the desert? I mean, you just bring us out here to kill us? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Funny how quickly things can change. From marching with boldness to scared to death, is This, not the word that we told you in Egypt, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. We can change on a dime, can't we? We go from singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, to gloom, despair, and agony on me. And listen, that's not to make fun of anybody, but that's the truth, isn't it? I mean, one minute we're boldly singing, I'm never going to turn around. And the next minute we are crying out in despair. It's natural to have these sorts of moments. But remember, if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Yahweh, His glory equals your best, then your natural should bow to His supernatural, shouldn't it? I mean, again, in 1 Corinthians, here's what Paul says about Christians. We have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So we should not bow to the natural when we have been given the supernatural spirit and insight as to how God operates. And here's what the Spirit of God says to us. Not just this time, but every single time when we are in a situation where we think God has let us down, the enemy has won, what are we going to do? Here is what the Spirit of God says. When we are scared to death and we think it is over, Rover, here's what God says every single time, verse 13, it's all throughout the Bible, but this time it's on blast from Moses, do not be afraid. And why does the Bible tell us do not be afraid? Over 360 times. Because we are so afraid. And God through Moses says, do not be afraid. I know you're afraid. You have a lot of reasons to be afraid. But I'm going to make a commandment that's going to make you angry at me at first. Don't be afraid. Stand still. Because what you want to do is be afraid and run. But I want you not be afraid and stand still and you will see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you as it's not going to require anything from you but he's going to accomplish it for you for the Egyptians you see today you shall see again no more forever a double emphasis hey this is going to be took care of but you've got to stand still and trust in me and you shouldn't be afraid got it got it Now let me make this clear. Standing firm doesn't mean standing still as in not doing anything. It just means taking a stand. It's not saying you should just be passive and you should just not care. Standing still, it's a Hebrew phrase that means taking a stand. It means you're going to make a decision. I'm going to trust, not fear. I'm going to believe, not be afraid. So, don't confuse taking a stand with standing still, as in with no intentions of doing anything or moving at all. The idea here is is that you shouldn't run. But also, taking a stand doesn't mean trusting in yourselves, it means putting your weight on God, transitioning your faith out of yourself into Him. And when you do this, when you take your stance, God is going to work on your behalf. That's what verse 13 says. There's a transaction there. Don't be afraid make a decision. Trust in God and you will see Him work and He will accomplish it for you. And verse 14 reiterates this. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Hold your peace is another translation is be silent. It literally comes from the Hebrew word that means to engrave in a stone. It means to make Permanent. It means to settle it and decide there's no other option. We use the phrase set in stone. To carve it in the stone without the option of reversing it. That's what deciding to trust God requires. To make a decision that you are going to go put yourself on the line. And I mean, at some point, when the Egyptians are coming over the hill and you're back up against the wall and you've stood there long enough, you've made your decision. that God's going to have to do something miraculous if it's going to go His way. This speaks of total commitment to God. And it's a way of saying, not my strength, not my words, but, in, but I will trust in His salvation, His power, and His word. And we will see the salvation, but we will not see the effects of salvation if we are not completely surrendered to God. Salvation doesn't mean help, of course, Salvation means rescue, total intervention. Right? So this isn't, hey God, can you help me out? This is, hey God, can you bail me out? And we've got to be totally surrendered to someone if we're going to see a total salvation. When somebody's saving you, it means that you're dying or you're doomed without them. Right? God God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to help you out today. He says, no, I'm going to save you today. As in you're hanging on and you need somebody to completely... Intervene, So we should know. We should know. We're not going to see the saving power. We're not going to see salvation's power if we haven't totally surrendered to the God of salvation. That's what Yahweh means. The God who saves. Look at verse 15 through 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. There's some water there, God. We can't walk forward. Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I will indeed harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them so that I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over over all of his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Again, there it is. When I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh and his chariots. So this is finally what God has been working for towards the entire story. The angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other. So God kind of forms this barrier between the Egyptians and the Jews for this brief moment to give, to give Moses the opportunity to step up to the plate. And notice it says that it gave light by night to the other so that one did not come near the other all that night. So there was some hesitation on Moses' part. God says, Moses, I want you to stand in front of all of them, and I want you to surrender to me. Isn't that what verse 21 says? Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Moses publicly surrenders in front of all of the people. As if if they had any faith in his ability at all, this was once and for all making sure that it was God alone who was going to get the glory. God says, Moses, you've got to stretch your hands out in front of the sea. You've got to surrender, and you've got to give this completely to me. Now, you try to tell me that the outward showings of faith aren't important. After God tells Moses, you've got to publicly raise your hands and surrender to me. God tells Moses, the leader who was already facing a group that wanted to turn back, God told Moses that he needed to publicly surrender, publicly surrender. So the question is, what are the signs of public surrender in your life? People say, well, I don't need to publicly surrender. It's private. It's personal. Let me ask you this. When we aren't showing our faith publicly, what are we showing publicly? Our flesh. Oh, I don't have to show my faith. People, you know, it's private. It's personal. You know what you do? You know what you show every single day to the world? You show your flesh, whether you like it or not. You show your flesh, and you show the things of your flesh to everybody. But if you make a decision to show your faith to the world, it's undeniable where your trust is when you publicly surrender when we publicly surrender we are denying our flesh the opportunity to glory and we're giving god a grand stage so don't buy the nonsense oh i don't have to publicly show my faith or i don't need to publicly surrender i don't need to publicly sing or publicly if you don't show your faith publicly you'll show something else When you don't publicly surrender, you're publicly denying faith to your flesh. You can't have it both ways. Don't let your flesh talk you out of standing up for your faith and taking a stand in your faith. And it's not just what happens in these buildings. It's everywhere. Don't give that place to a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a Facebook post either. You've got flesh and blood that's going to show off if you don't channel your faith through it. From your hands to your feet to your tongues. And if you don't submit them to God, they'll just glorify somebody or something else. So Moses lifts his hands up. And the Lord calls the sea to go back by a strong wind all that night. He made the sea into dry land. The waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on the right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. It came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and He troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horses. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on the dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant, Moses. And they never, ever, ever had reason to doubt who and by what power They were saved. It was that close. But God saved them. Ultimate trust led to maximum glory. And maximum glory always produces maximum power, and maximum power always produces the ultimate best. But you don't get to the ultimate best if you don't start with ultimate trust. This chapter should be etched into our hearts as believers. Because in a way it models and it portrays how we got saved and how supernatural our salvation is. But it also shows just the call over our lives every single day. Ultimate trust is what's required to see the ultimate best come to our lives. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this awesome, ultimate story of the power of salvation. Father, I I know this is a story that we've heard since we were kids, but reading it every time gives me goosebumps. Every little detail that you preserve through the Spirit, through the hand of Moses, is so awesome to be able to read this. But God, it also charges us with this powerful Reminder that if we don't put our ultimate trust in you, we're never going to see the maximum glory. We're never going to see your maximum power. We're never going to receive our ultimate best. Father, it begins with ultimate surrender. And God Moses was put on the spot there. You You made him get in front of all those people and show them that he was not their God. He was not the prophet with power. It was you. He surrendered to you and with his surrender, the waters parted. Father, I pray you might would give us the courage to know what to do, the courage to step out and take you at your word, to choose your glory over ours, to choose your way over ours, to choose what you have said over what we think so that you might receive glory, so that you might receive all the honor, so that we might experience your power, yeah, but most of all so that we might have the best outcome that you intend. Father, I pray this over your people tonight. You might would strengthen them and equip them and you might would show them the way you would have them to go that they might would trust in you with all their heart, all their soul and all their might. And they might would see the salvation of the Lord in the days to come. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.